truly. I think I knew that I had a problem right from the beginning, but I was pretty good with the denial. Um, probably when I was around the 18 years old, I realised that I think my 18th birthday, I totally wiped myself out, went and slept in someone's car and then came back for more and everybody lost me and they didn't know where I was and they were ringing my parents. So somehow I got home. My parents came to look for me. I had that ability to pretend that nothing was going on. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we enable people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last five years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week we feature a community voice just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. Here's a lady from one of our Sober Spring WhatsApp groups. Having a sober tribe has helped me understand that, you know, there are so many people who have kicked the drinking habit out there who are part of the tribe and they share their stories. And every now and again, they remind us where they came from. And when you join the tribe, you realize that they came, they started right where you are where you couldn't put the bottle down and one day they did. And when they're sitting there telling you they've got 200 days, 400 days, however many days, even 40 days is quite a feat. It is so encouraging and that's what has kept me going. So thank you to the tribe. I am so grateful to have let the drink go. So if you want to join our community and do a sober spring, just go to tribesober.com and check us out. One of the many benefits of podcasting is that we're getting to reach people from all over the world, including Australia, which is where my next guest is from. Therapist Deb Clark is an interesting lady who's had problems with alcohol in her past, but she's now been alcohol-free for an amazing 17 years. We talked about her drinking days, about how she got sober, and about her therapy practice. I began by asking Deb to introduce herself. Yeah, hi Janet. Thanks for having me. Um, well, I live in the Sunshine Coast, which is Queensland in Australia, which is the east coast of Australia. Um, I'm 62. I live with my granddaughter who's 17. I have a son that's 38 and I have been on my sober journey since 2004. Wow. So congratulations for all that sober time that you've notched up. 
And uh, let's so let's delve back into those drinking years, shall we? If if you don't mind, uh, to, tell us how old you were when you first discovered um, drinking and what it did to you. Sure. Okay, so I would have been sixteen. Um, I'd been sent to boarding school, and I thought it was some kind of punishment. And we used to have these parties where we all put in two dollars each, and the boys bought the alcohol and then we'd have a party but it was always hidden behind the parents garden parties and stuff like that so they really didn't know when we were drinking so I guess the first time I drank I drank a lot of tequila and made myself very sick and um, I couldn't wait to do it again (laughs) even though I made myself really sick because I I just thought oh this is amazing it takes me away from myself and I, that was my first little adventure with drinking. Wow, tequila! I'm just thinking it's quite hardcore to uh, to get going, isn't it? A lot of people they have cider or beer or glass of wine. You you go straight for the tequila. <laughs> well, I had no idea. It was more the whole ritual of it—the salt yeah. and the shot and the lemon—and I guess because there was a lot of other people there with me, it it never occurred to me. But I didn't keep drinking tequila, fortunately. So what what did it evolve into? Well, actually, after that, and I think with the tequila, because I really didn't like the smell or the taste of alcohol, I just liked the effect. I I liked that being taken out of myself and not having to care. We drank pretty much anything. I grew up in Caloundra and our main place was the Pearl Hotel, <laughs> which we went to on Sundays to the Sunday sessions because they were only open, like, I think from 12 till 2 and then it was 4 till 6. And um, so, yeah, that that was kind of – and pretty much everybody drank. But I'm not sure that they all drank like I did. I, I, I sort of had that idea that you drank to black out. I was never occurred to me that you drank just to relax. I just thought it was a pastime that you drank to wipe yourself out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was a bit like that too. I, I would go out and you'd want to get a result. You know, you'd, you'd want to, well, not quite pass out if you could help it, but you'd really want to have a lot to drink. And then the next morning you'd all be sharing your hangovers and it was all kind of part of the ritual, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And I didn't see it as a big problem because I still went to work and, yeah, I worked in a pharmacy then. But I also worked at a restaurant because they gave us free drinks after work. And <laughs> then I, <laughs> so it was like the perfect storm, really. Absolutely, yeah. So what kind of age were you when you did start wondering if alcohol was bad for you and that you were developing a bit of a problem oh truly I think I knew that I had a problem right from the beginning but I was pretty good with the denial um probably when I was around the 18 years old I realized that I think my 18th birthday I totally wiped myself out went and slept in someone's car and then came back for more and everybody lost me and they didn't know where I was and they were ringing my parents so somehow I got home my parents came to look for me I had that ability to pretend that nothing was going on so 
so yeah that was when I first started and someone suggested to me that could go to a meeting but everybody was so anti that it was like you'd be you had a real problem if you did that and I Mm. didn't want to have that real problem yeah I mean that's the problem isn't it with AA you think well people that go to AA are alcoholics and you always think oh that hardcore alcoholic the homeless person but many of us certainly you know we might be on the way there but we're we're very functioning we've got good jobs nice families we hold it all together so that that going to meetings doesn't really work for for a lot of us and of course uh, you were telling me before we went on air that um that there really wasn't anything else then no there wasn't and i didn't realize that there was quite a big cohort of aa at that particular time like i knew people went to meetings but um you know, and I'd say to people, oh, maybe I should go. And they'd say, oh, no, it's not about it. You just drink too much when you do drink. But once I started, I couldn't stop. And I didn't really understand that. And neither did anyone else, really. And I remember going to the doctor and saying that I thought I had a problem. And then it was like, oh, well, it's probably just depression. And I got put on antidepressants and all that kind of stuff and yeah it was change you know it was never really about how much I drank so that was my early 20s yeah so you were a bit of a binge drinker really you had no off switch once you started so would you go through a whole period say a week without having a drink and then it was like the weekend when you started drinking heavily were you in that kind of pattern Oh, absolutely, and that's what made me not be able to understand it was that I could have lots of days without drinking as long as I didn't pick up a drink. I was fine, but the minute I picked up a drink, that was it. Yeah, 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 it's it's very interesting, but that is a warning sign. I, I'm pretty convinced now that if if you start drinking, you know, if you, you might have a strong resolve, I'll just have two glasses of wine tonight, but you have one glass and that's it. You know, the bets are off then, you have to keep going. So that's, that's a sign that you need to make a change, I think. So did you ever try to cut down on your own, Bev? Did you think, oh, right, I'm going to stop drinking for a few months? I did. Um, I got pregnant in my early 20s and I just completely stopped and then I became like the alcohol Nazi. No one was allowed <laughs> to drink. It was like, that's like evil. You can't do that. And um, I actually didn't drink for a couple of years after while my son was young. I think I probably worked out that it was the first drink, but I didn't totally understand that then. And how did you feel during those two sober years? Awful because I was, (laughs) well, I didn't really feel awful. It's just that every time I walked into a pub, it would smell and things like that. But I hadn't done anything about my thinking. So I still had that same kind of thinking. And like I said, I was an alcohol Nazi. It was like, that's the worst thing that you can do for yourself. And what are you doing? And everything like that. But probably we had restaurants when my son was a couple of years old so we moved to Sydney and um yeah my 
my husband had a car accident and had a broken leg and was in traction and then it was like oh poor me you know <laughs> look at my life and I was living I had to stay at the doctor's quarters and then I moved back to Sydney with the guy that we were starting the restaurant with and him and I just started drinking and it was yeah we we used to drink excessively <laughs> Yeah, so so back to previous patterns, really. Yeah, just to go back to those those two sober years that you said were awful. Do you think uh, now, with the knowledge that you have these days, of course, uh, do you think you were relying on willpower really, and you hadn't set your reset your mind about alcohol? Because I, I believe now that once you you stop believing that alcohol can add anything to your life, then then it's it works, and you're happy about being sober. But oh, it sounds like you hadn't got to that stage. No, I hadn't got to that stage. And I was still, and I was feeling really sorry for myself and, yeah. you know, doing the poor me's and, you know, I'm not allowed to do this and I can't do this. And, and yeah, I, I don't think I was that equipped for being an adult. I remember when I got pregnant, my mum saying to me, you can't even look after yourself how you're going to look after a child, which is not the greatest thing to say. <laughs> so, no. So, yeah, it was relying on willpower. Yeah, so I really yeah, made Because it's either, if, if you take that approach, I think, well, it either doesn't last, you know, in your case it was two years or, or otherwise you might think, oh, I'm all right now, I can just have the odd drink and then it goes pear-shaped. So you can either keep it going by willpower and be miserable or it doesn't last you know it doesn't sobriety doesn't work until you've completely uh, undergone a mindset and I really believe that and we'll talk more about that later on when we talk about the the root cause therapy because I think this limiting beliefs thing is is the key to everything it's the key to change so let's go back to the drinking. We haven't quite finished uh, <laughs> grilling you, Deb. We want more gory details. Uh, did you ever have a rock bottom? You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. So I went out with my cousin and I had one drink, I think, and I drove up the main street with lights on the car, which I've done heaps of times now, sober. But I got pulled over and I got breathalyzed and I was just over the point oh five and they said, oh, okay, we'll give you 20 minutes and then it went down. But then they said to me that had that not happened, I would have spent the night in jail because I had a Victorian number plate and I went, oh, no, this is all coming in on top of me. I really can't do this. Um, then I went... But I still kept on drinking for a couple of days. And then I went to pick my grandmother up from the sportsman's club that she'd been at playing cards because she was a big card shop. And I locked us outside. <laughs> so here I am. I've been drinking. So I'm driving around with a 90-year-old drunk thinking, what am I doing? This is just insane. I what? And anyway, she said, oh, I walked into my cousin's place and she was drinking and she said, oh, don't bring Nan in here. And I just said, oh, this has got to stop. But I still kept drinking for a couple more days. And I got a phone call from the hospital because my son had 
a drug problem. And, I mean, alcohol's a drug as well, but he's never really drunk. It was an illicit drug problem. And he'd taken an overdose and he was on uh, life support. And they said to me that I had to fly to Melbourne to turn off his life support. And I went, oh, this is my denial. I'm like, I don't do that. He'll get up and walk out. And I made this deal with I don't know who. I went, oh, if, if he walks out, then um, I'll never drink again. <laughs> and actually I rang the hospital back three hours later and they said, oh, he just got up and walked out and I went, oh, what do I do now? So I had no idea who I made this deal with and I've never had a drink since then. Wow, what's a story, eh? I know. <laughs> have you told? Have you shared that? Did you share that story with your son? Oh, absolutely, because he has had his moments of getting clean and everything else. But of course, then I still didn't think I had a real problem, didn't because I wasn't on a park bench and I still had money and yeah I actually went to an AA meeting I don't know the people that were there were um they're all really friendly and nice to me and and I and and I heard their stories and for some reason I saw this hope but I thought oh, I can fix my son <laughs> yeah then, it's never us is it it's always no, no, someone no. else I thought oh wow if I keep doing this I can fix him and they just went along with it and just said to me, I'll keep yeah. coming back. And I said to them, well, do I have to come back tomorrow? And they said, yeah, yeah, it'd be a good idea or you can walk outside and get hit by a bus and I'll be all over. And then, of course, then I got scared. I went, oh, no, I might get hit by a bus. I have to keep going back because I still, this is how crazy I was, even though I didn't have a problem. But I, I was sort of, I was scared because I made this deal. I didn't have a problem and I didn't want to get hit by a bus. I thought they might know something that I didn't because I walked outside and that the bus depot was just down the road from where the meeting was. So of course, there were lots of buses going past. I thought, oh, no, maybe someone did get hit by a bus. I don't, don't think I'd better do that. That was the beginning for me. And, and in between this, my granddaughter was born. So that was the – she was born in the January – it was the November that I got sober. But then I was like, oh, gosh, it's six weeks before Christmas. It's my birthday. What am I going to do? And it was just crazy. But I just went to lots and lots of meetings because I had nothing much else better to do. Yeah, I listened to people and somehow I, because I remember standing there and saying to them, I don't need to do all those steps on the wall. I've done most of them. And I just wanted to rewrite the big book and thought I knew everything. And did, did you do the 12 steps in the end? Yeah, I did. Kicking and screaming. This lady said to me she'd be my temporary sponsor. And, of course, she made me ring her every day and that really annoyed me. I was like, what am I doing ringing this person every day? So that was at the beginning of mobile phones, I think, in 2004. So I sent her a text saying, you're sacked. <laughs> she didn't really care. No one seemed to really care what I did. But, um, yeah, I did 
I, I did write out my fourth step and, yeah, I was like everybody else where I went, oh, you know, this is terrifying, this is terrifying, when really it's not because you're the one that lived it all. So I went to see a doctor and I said to him, I think I'm an alcoholic and he didn't say anything to me. And he was South African. He'd only just come to Australia and he said, I will do some blood tests and come back. And he didn't say anything. And I thought, oh, this, what, you know, this is really not good. So when my blood tests came back, they were all pretty good. And um, he said to me, oh, I haven't had a drink for 20 years. And I went, oh, no, it's following me. <laughs> that was my beginnings of my sobriety. Interesting. Yeah, I just got two comments. Uh, the way you said you were thinking, oh, it's Christmas in six weeks and it's my birthday. I think that's such a common loop that we all go through, isn't it? And the, the thing is, there's always something on the horizon. It'll be a wedding or a party. There's always something. And we just have to kind of grasp it and think, right, I'll do it now. And then when the wedding and the party and everything else comes, I always say to people, make it a sober first. You know, you, you probably hate it, but so what? Just get through it. And then you've had your sober first birthday, the sober first party. I mean, it takes a while, but it, it gets easier. And the second thing I wanted to say, uh, Bev, was about the doctors, the doctor's tests. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I used to go to my doctor and I, I'd been on at least a bottle of wine a day for a long time. And I used to say, will you do my liver tests? You know, I'm sure, you know, I said I do drink wine. <laughs> I didn't say how much. And I'd love to uh, just to to see what 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 your tests are saying about my liver. And every time he'd say, they're absolutely fine. So I'd go away and carry on drinking. And now that I understand more, I mean, those those tests, they really don't don't tell you very much. And I'm sure that's that's what was happening at your doctor. And the best test probably to have is a liver stiffness test. And I haven't had that yet because I'm still scared. But I think if you have a liver stiffness test, then that is a much better indicator. It's like a scan, you know, an ultrasound. So uh, I think, you know, that you need to be careful. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says you're fine, then, you know, if your drinking's on your mind, then you're not fine, really. Just do something about it. And then you can get rid of this nagging voice that's always there. Any memories of what happened to your social life? Because a lot of people are intimidated by what their friends are going to say and how they're going to break this news to people and will they lose all their friends, etc. How did you cope with peer pressure and did you have any? I think the biggest peer pressure I had was with my family. My younger sister had just come out of rehab. I went to her house and she said to me, don't come here with your AA talk. I'm like, um, you just came out of rehab. They weren't really, I thought they'd be really excited that I was an alcoholic <laughs> and they weren't. They were actually mortified. They just thought it was a fad that I was going through. And it's funny because my dad's almost 85 and he still doesn't speak about the fact that I don't drink. Yeah. Um, it's like the elephant in the room. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's and and it was kind of, I think he said something like, Oh, you were brought up better than that of going to a 
AA meeting. So it was, but you know what, I, I kind of liked that and that sort of helped me a lot because it was like, oh, they hate it, I'll have to keep going. And as for my friends, I think a few of my friends were kind of relieved because they never could keep up with me. But I was in a town that um, I didn't really know a lot of people, so the only people that I knew were the people that were in AA. So I socialised mostly with sober people. Yeah, well, certainly at the beginning that, that makes so much sense. Can you just summarise for us, Bev, what benefits you, you've experienced from alcohol-free living? So it's been quite a bit of time for me um, and I just find that it brings new awareness all the time. Like I'm always learning things about myself. I'm much more comfortable in my own skin. I don't have that anxiety yeah, it's just that freedom. It's that freedom of being able to do what I want and not be a victim. Yeah. yeah, I think our lives open out again, don't they? I mean, do you ever think, uh, I've only been sober six years, I mean, it's nothing bad with you, but uh, I sometimes think, you know, if I'd been drinking the last six years, it would have got worse and worse and I could well be dead by now, you know, because I'm quite old anyway, <laughs> but I'm sure I'm only healthy because, you know, I'm, I've got a really good lifestyle these days. And do you ever think that, you know, imagine if you'd been drinking since 2004, you wouldn't be in such good shape, would you? Absolutely. I would not. <laughs> in fact, when I turned 50, it was like, oh, wow, I made it. And also, I guess the other incentive for me was um, my granddaughter went into the foster care system when she was two weeks old. So at two, she came to live with me. And I used to always joke and go, oh, if I'm at 50 and at preschool, that'll just be ridiculous. And that's exactly what happened to me. And I was like, oh, no, should be careful what I wish for. It's just been such a privilege to be able to bring up a child totally yeah. so sober. Um, I often wonder if I had have had, because your thinking's different, everything's different. I often wonder if... If I had have been sober, bring up, and I can't change that, but I don't have that guilt and shame about that. But yeah, it's just interesting. But she's different to her dad as well. So you just don't know. So yeah, it's been a privilege to be able to do that, which there is no way that I could have done that if I had been still drinking. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, and you, you're such an amazing role model for her because even if she does, you know, go a bit over the top with experimenting with alcohol, sometimes you can talk to her, but from a place of honesty, you're not being a hypocrite because, you know, you're drinking, which is a lot of parents struggle with that. They drink a lot themselves and then they see their teenagers running wild and, you know, it's how, how do you talk to them when you're doing the same? Even if, you know, you're at home in front of TV, you're still consuming the same amount probably. I remember being out walking with her one Sunday morning and there was a guy walking along, being ill, obviously very intoxicated, and she said to me, did you ever do that? And I said, I have to be honest, yes, I have. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's it's being able to be real and not feel ashamed yeah. about it. it your behaviour is not who you are. It's what you do. Yeah. yeah. 
So and I think uh, even, I mean, your your uh, granddaughter's a teenager now, but even small children, you know, they take it all in, don't they? We we have great stories in our community of you know quite young children going to the to the supermarket with their mums, and if their mum's picking up alcohol-free wine, they'll say, but mum, you don't drink wine, remember, in a loud voice. And they're, they're like the wine police. It's hilarious, really. I think you should bring them on side if you've got children. They very yeah. much mirror what you do. Um, talking about that, I remember my son being four and he was on the kitchen table singing Tiny Kangaroo Downsport and someone said to me, oh, what's going on there? I said, oh, he's fine. They said, I think he's been drinking your wine. I'm like, oh, no, I don't think so. But I'm pretty sure now that, yes, he probably. Yeah, yeah. but you, you've changed so much. And is your son okay? He He actually ended up on the prescription drug path and... Yeah, he's been in and out of jail, and I don't have a problem with that at all because it kind of highlights the inadequacies of our systems because I don't know about there, but we have a very punitive system where there's no rehabilitation. And so the recidivism rate is quite high. It's about a six to eight turnaround, and there's drugs in jail. I finally think I might have learned to mind my own business <laughs> and 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 to allow him that path because he's 38. I was 43 when I got yep. 44 when I got sober. So there's a fair amount of time difference there. And the more I learn, the more I understand that it's his journey. I still exactly, yeah. and if you um, keep the connection, if and just you know wait and see what happens, you know he he'll get it in the end, I'm sure, just as you and myself got it eventually. But it's it's very hard for a family member, you know. I remember I was asked like just yesterday on the radio, and I think that's the hardest question of all. You know, what do you do if a family member is just completely going over the top with their booze or drugs? It's so difficult, isn't it? As you it, well know. It's really difficult and I think, or, and I was actually talking to someone about this today, about their brother, and I said, you just got to love them unconditionally. And that's yeah. really hard because it's about them as the person and not put conditions on your love with them. I mean, of course, you still need boundaries and not using in front of you and around you, but it's such a fine line between that um supporting and enabling every saturday afternoon we open up our tribe sober zoom cafe it's a safe space where our members can connect check in and just shoot the breeze about alcohol free living if you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one saturday just drop us an email at janet at tribesober.com that's janet j-a-n-e-t at tribesober.com and we'll send you an invitation. Yeah. Yeah. And I did go to Al-Anon meetings, but then they were all moaning about alcoholics. And I remember lying on the table and going, I, I kind of didn't tell you guys that I d- did have a problem with alcohol. I said, but if you think you can whinge about us, you should hear us whinge about ourselves. Absolutely. It- I remember I tried to moderate for 10 years just because I couldn't imagine life without alcohol. So I tried to control it. 
and I would control it with willpower, you know, for about six weeks, even seven weeks, and then I would drink till I blacked out, and the wheels would come off, and I'd be so filled with self-loathing. You know, your self-esteem is just on the floor, isn't it? And you go round and round in this. So we don't want to make people feel worse. You know, as you say, it's got to be about unconditional love, being there for them, and they have to go on their own journey. They do, and and you just got to be prepared for the outcome. Yeah, yeah, and be there for them when they they want to talk to you because you know that I bet your son will in the end because especially now you're you're a therapist. Let's let's talk a little bit about that, Bev, because I'm so interested in your root cause therapy because I, I'm a great fan of Annie Grace, you know, and her book The Naked Mind. It's all about those limiting beliefs. So if you could explain root sure. cause therapy, I haven't heard that expression before. I actually became a therapist to try and rewrite things. I think. So along the way during my sobriety, I ended up doing my Masters of Counselling. But I I always felt like there was something that, that was more like it, it was very intellectualised and I felt like you needed to look at more holistically of the body and everything all together. So it, it was kind of what we were talking about before that um, – probably between one and seven, we pick up these beliefs that are not necessarily true, but they're stories that we tell ourselves that keep ourselves safe, you know. And and it's not anybody's fault that we have those stories. It just is. But, you know, it's kind of where the I'm not good enough and the shame. So with the root cause, it's um really about those beliefs that we have in our subconscious because like a subconscious runs like a hard drive of a computer so everything that happens to us is sitting there and even though we don't really totally know that it's there it is there and that's pretty much what triggers are because something will happen and you'll have this big reaction and that and it's usually something that's unhealed from the past so with the root cause therapy, um, it's it's a bit of kinesiology, different kind of things. So we use a sway test to get your body to answer the different questions. So you ask somebody, get someone to say, I'm not good enough, and they will sway forward, which is yes. And you usually find with people that have any kind of addiction issues that that will be one of the causes of it, the shame, the guilt, and the I'm not good enough. And it sits there and it comes up. So then we do like a timeline therapy and take people back. And for some reason that thought drops in, then we turn up the emotion and it's removed. I, it's amazing. I don't know how it works, but it does. And I've worked with a lot of people with it and it's been um quite effective and a lot of the limiting beliefs do actually sit in our different chakra systems and I started seeing a kinesiologist myself and it amazed me the different things that she could pick up so yeah our bodies are quite amazing 
Oh, that that sounds so interesting, Bev. And as you know, we're going to incorporate you in a, in our membership program. So uh, yeah. this will be uh, lovely for our members to experience, at least because you can do it online, can't you? Of course, and I've only ever done it online. Okay, well, I'll talk at the end of the podcast more about how people can can get in touch with you. But just uh, let us know your website name, please, in case there's any people not in our group that would like to contact you directly. Sure. So my website is changingstories.com.au. And you can just book a discovery call on there, which is just, you know, a call to see if this is right for you. Thank you, Deb. That was really interesting. Let's try and pick out a few highlights from our conversation. Deb was very much a binge drinker. She could go for several days without drinking, but once she picked up a drink, she had no off switch. I was like that and many of our tribal. Because she could go for a few days without drinking, she felt she couldn't really have a problem. And in fact, her friends reassured her that she just needed to drink less. That's not particularly helpful advice. It reminds me of my husband who used to say, can you not just have one glass? Some of us just can't. At some point, Deb managed two years sober. But it wasn't a good time for her as she hadn't changed her thinking about drinking and she felt sorry for herself. She hadn't done the work. We always say this journey is in two parts. First of all, you have to quit drinking and then you have to do the work. You have to reconfigure your life so that you've learned to thrive in your alcohol-free life. It's no good just surviving and feeling sorry for yourself. As Deb says, she was just relying on willpower to stay away from the booze. And recent research has shown us that willpower is actually a finite resource and it will run out almost like a muscle gets tired after an hour in the gym. Just imagine you've had a really tough day at work and needed all your willpower not to lose your temper with your colleagues. And then you get home and remember, oh, it's a non-drinking day, much harder to stick to than if you've had an easy day. Once we've had a problem with alcohol, the only way we can stay alcohol-free and be happy about it is by changing our mindset. Otherwise, we'll always feel that something is missing and we'll have all those bouts of FOMO. We have to identify our limiting beliefs around alcohol and then overturn them. When Deb got sober, there was nothing available to help her except AA. And she resisted that because, although she did need help, she thought AA was for real alcoholics. Unlike many of us, her image of an alcoholic was a homeless man in the park. Her turning point came when she had a call from a hospital to go and turn off the life support machine of her son who'd taken a drug overdose. She found herself bargaining. She's not quite sure who she was bargaining with, but she did a deal. She said, let my son live and I'll never drink again. Well, thankfully, her son lived. So it was time for Deb to keep her side of the bargain. She did this by going to meetings. She'd still not really recognized herself as an alcoholic, so she convinced herself that she was there to listen and learn as she may be able to help her son deal with his drug problem. One thing she did enjoy AA was listening to all the stories. There's such power in telling our stories to a group of people who are struggling with alcohol. 
not only is it cathartic for us, but it reassures others that there is not something wrong with them. They just happen to get addicted to an addictive drug. And in fact, 20% of social drinkers will become dependent over the years. We see the power of sharing our stories at our workshops, where we always begin with a share. People are so emotional when they talk about just how unhappy alcohol has been making them. And you get a sense with some people that it's the first time that they've actually verbalized their feelings around alcohol. And there is such a deep bond created when we speak our truth. It's all about the power of vulnerability. Deb has written a guest blog for our website. If you go to tribesober.com, hit inspiration and you'll see it there. I wanted to quote from that blog. She says, I love that all of us who've had issues with alcohol somehow get each other without having to say very much at all. That is so true, and that's what we see on our workshops. Deb talked of her reluctance to step on the sober journey, as there always seemed to be a party or Christmas or a birthday around the corner. The thing is, there's never a right time to quit the booze. We just have to get started, get some sober time, and get those first sober parties done. They probably won't be much fun, but they will get easier. Apparently, Deb went to her doctor for tests as she was worried about the effect that alcohol might be having on her body. Well, he did some tests and told her that she was fine. I remember going through this loop as well. Many of the standard liver function tests will look normal, even if you drink far too much. But don't be misled as the damage could well be happening. Testing is not the real issue, though. The real issue is whether your drinking is on your mind. If it is, if you're worried about it, then reach out and get some help. I asked Deb what the main benefit of sobriety was for her, and she simply said, freedom. I so relate to that. The relief and the peace that comes with sobriety is priceless. And our life opens out again as we begin to enjoy everyday pleasures. Of course, as you heard, Deb herself has been in the very difficult position of having a son with a drug problem, which led us to talk about the difficulty of dealing with a loved one with an issue. Deb felt it was about unconditional love and being there, but obviously the person has to decide for themselves. You can find a blog on our website about this issue. Just go to tribesober.com, hit inspiration, hit conversations with Janice. And I think she's called her blog, My Partner Has a Drinking Problem. And you'll find it there. It's, it's great, full of good advice. So back to Deb, who is now a therapist and specializes in root cause therapy, which looks at limiting beliefs. Those stories we tell ourselves, such as, I'm not good enough and the limiting beliefs we hold around alcohol, like, I need alcohol to have fun, to relax, to get rid of my stress. All beliefs, all false beliefs that sit in our subconscious. I'm happy to tell you that Deb is working with Tribe Sober these days. She's offering her root cause therapy to our members, and she'll be running workshops for our Australian members. So if you're in Australia, or New Zealand, and would like to attend a workshop, then just email janet at tribesober.com and we'll keep you posted. So here in South Africa, we've just moved into spring. Every year, Tribe Sober runs a Sober Spring Challenge. We've done it for the last four years. 
It comprises of 66 alcohol-free days with online audio and community support. It's great fun because we put our challenges on what we call the Sober Spring Bus, which is a WhatsApp group, and they travel through the 66 days together. We give them a tracker and we encourage them to mark off the alcohol-free days to see how many they can get out of 66. We run two buses every year. The first Sober Spring bus left last week and our second bus leaves on the 27th of September. So please go to tribesober.com if you'd like more info. And even if it's not spring where you live, you can do a sober autumn. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.